I've entitled our message, A Baptist Preacher. Um, this uh, idea came to me as I was talking to Miss Faye some weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about John the Baptist and how um, maybe in the past some Baptist churches uh, tried to overemphasize the point and make the point that uh, John the Baptist was of the Baptist denomination, <laughs> uh, even though it had not existed yet, but uh, he certainly was a uh, one who baptized and he dunked people. So we're going to see that. He was a, a preacher, which is the emphasis of our text this morning. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6. Follow along as I read. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Well, I noticed on February 1st of this month, uh, Tom Brady announced his retirement again from the NFL. Uh, news outlets began referring to Brady as the GOAT, as the GOAT. Maybe you don't know that acronym, but it stands for greatest of all time. Uh, it's believed that this title is actually uh, originated with Muhammad Ali. You know, of course we know uh, the famous boxer, Muhammad Ali, and he would often say, I am the greatest, right? And so uh, one source said that uh, the earliest example we could find for goat uh, used to mean greatest of all time is from September 1992 when Lani Ali, Muhammad Ali's wife, incorporated greatest of all time, Inc., goat Inc., to consolidate and license her husband's intellectual properties for commercial purposes, and then in 2000, rapper LL Cool J named one of his albums GOAT, greatest of all time. And since then, many, particularly athletes, have been given this title of the GOAT. Uh, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, Michael Phelps, and now Tom Brady. Uh, Tom Brady, and it's the you know, Super Bowl today, so this is your kind of cultural way of contextualizing, I guess. But uh, he, he's a seven-time Super Bowl champion, owning more Lombardi trophies than any NFL franchise. He's a five-time Super Bowl MVP, more than any other player. He is a three-time NFL MVP and the oldest to have ever won it at age 40 in 2017. 
He's a 15-time Pro Bowler, six-time All-Pro selection, and two-time NFL Offensive Player of the Year. And you could go on and on. Uh, But our intention is not to talk about Tom Brady or the other goats, but actually to study the career of another goat, the greatest of all time, John the Baptist. (laughs) And the person who gave him this title was Jesus. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Uh, John is the greatest of all time when it comes to Old Testament prophets. And so he is the one we are going to look at and be introduced to his ministry, his public ministry. Why is he the greatest to ever live up to that point in history? Because he had the greatest task up to that point. He was given the task of proclaiming the Messiah, of preparing the way for the greatest man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really it wasn't even something about him, but it was what he did that made him the greatest. It was that he pointed to the greatest and therefore he was the greatest prophet. He came to announce the Messiah to the world and he broke the 400 uh, plus years of silence for the prophets of God by speaking out in the wilderness the word of God and giving a message to the people. His ministry was prophesied beforehand in Isaiah 40, in Malachi 3, and Malachi 4, as one who would come before the Messiah to prepare the way for him, one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, an Elijah-like figure. And so, in a way, John put on the jersey of Elijah, right? It tells us in 2 Kings 1 that Elijah wore a distinctive clothing, Uh, to distinguish himself. And so when John comes on the scene, uh, Luke doesn't tell us this, but Matthew does, of his unique clothing that he wore. And it's almost like it's a throwback. It's John's way of saying and associating himself with Elijah and his ministry as one of these great prophets. His birth was miraculous because his mother Elizabeth was too old to have children. And we read about that in uh, Luke chapter 1. It also represents, his ministry does, the end of an era. He is the end of an era. You know, when someone uh, famous retires uh, from uh, what they did, they'll often say, oh, it's the end of an era. Well, John is the end of an era. It's the end of the Old Covenant era, the, uh, the, the prophetic ministry. He's the last Old Testament prophet completing this era. He is often known as John the Baptist, some people like to call him the baptizer. It doesn't really matter. Either one works. Uh, he, he was one who uh, dunked people. The word baptize is a transliteration of the Greek word, which means basically they just take the Greek word and turn it into an English word. You know, that's what they did. They didn't translate it. They just used the same thing. So the word itself means to dip, to immerse, to dunk, right? So that's what the word means. Uh, and it was used uh, in extra-biblical literature uh, of fullers who would dunk a cloth or a garment to bleach it or to dye it in some color. And so they would, they would dip it all the way under to get it to have that color. And so John is the dunker. Uh, he is the dipper, right? He's the big dipper or the little dipper, you know, 
First he's the big dipper because he's, you know, the greatest. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Then he's the little dipper, you know, he's humble, right? So, uh, but he is the one who dunks people. And, and so he's known for his, his baptizing ministry, but he's also known for his preaching ministry, his preaching ministry. He's out in the wilderness. He's the ultimate outdoorsman uh, living on the land in the ultimate sense, locusts and wild honey. And uh, he has lived, uh, chapter 1, verse 80, for much of his life growing up in the wilderness. Chapter 1, verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And he's like Bear Grylls before Bear Grylls. This is truly man versus wild. He is, he is a strange figure, and it's intentional. And so now he finally comes on the scene. He is, he's like the best man in the wedding. He's not the point of the wedding. He is to facilitate attention being drawn to the groom, the bridegroom. And so that is what he does. He's the best man. And he points to the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, preparing the way for him. It's amazing that the Old Testament not only specifically predicts the coming of a Messiah, but it also predicts with specificity the coming of a forerunner who would prepare the way. And John is that direct fulfillment. He'll later point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His is a work of preparation for the ministry of the Messiah. One writer said this, his task was twofold, to prepare the people for the Messiah and to present the Messiah to the people. Now, we're in a new chapter, so let's look at the division of this chapter. How does this chapter break down? What are, what are the focal points? And really, I think you could divide it into three sections. You have uh, verses 1 to 20, which focus on the preaching of John the Baptist. Then you have verses 21 and 22, which focus on the baptism of Jesus. And then 23 to the end of the chapter is the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, it's not hard to see the genealogy, all the names, and just the way it's even indented in most Bibles. But... Our, our focus is in, is in this first section of the preaching of John the Baptist. And Lord willing, this week and next week, we'll look at this section of verses 1 to 20. Uh, we're going to look at the beginning part in verses 1 to 6. And in these 20 verses, or 20, yeah, 20 verses, we really get an uh, important look at preaching, what preaching is and looks like from the ministry of John the Baptist, one of the greatest preachers. You know, there's certain preachers that you really wish you could have heard. Uh, I think they had the technology, even though it was pretty rudimentary at the time when Spurgeon was still alive, to have recorded him, but no one did. Uh, maybe someone did, and it's just hiding somewhere in, you know, next to the Ark of the Covenant or something. You know, it's like, well, but, uh, but we don't have any recordings. But, you know, you have recordings of someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones and you can listen to that and it's incredible to, to, to listen to his preaching. But wouldn't you have loved to have heard the voice of John the Baptist? You probably couldn't have understand it because it wasn't in English. But, uh, but, but just to think about this man's ministry and what a powerful preacher he was. And that's really the focus of these 20 verses is the preaching of John the Baptist. Look at verse 2. As after listing all these different rulers, it says the word of God came to John. And then in verse four, as it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet. Verse four then continues to quote Isaiah and says the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This crying out is not like, 
you know, crying because he's like got hurt. It's like crying out like a lion roaring in the wilderness. Authoritatively speaking out the word of God. Um, we, we actually hear him preaching in the, the, the remainder of this section where he's addressing people and he's confronting people and he's also counseling people as it regards repentance. And, and then he's pointing to the person of Christ and his glory. And he is fearless in his preaching to even preach before Herod and to call him out on his sin. And then in verse 18, it tells us, this is just a summary statement, it says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. That's really the banner over this section. John preached good news to the people. He heralded it. He proclaimed it. And so, yes, his message is one of confrontation and repentance, and yet that is good news for those who are lost. It is the response to the good news, along with faith. Along with faith. And so we're going to learn a number of points about preaching that leads people to Christ. Because that is what John sought to do. He was to prepare the way for Christ. His preaching was to lead people to the Messiah. And so his, his model of preaching is a good one for us to learn what kind of preaching leads people to the Messiah. And it is preaching that is preaching of repentance. It's no surprise that this was a hallmark of John's ministry it is pictured in Isaiah as clearing the way of the road. It's like when a dignitary comes in and, and you want to make sure that the road is smooth. You, you clear out the trash. You, you fill in the holes and the potholes. And there's a kind of a roadwork project. And that's how John is described. He is, he's doing the roadwork on the heart, preparing people for repentance so that they're ready to receive the Messiah. And so let's begin to consider some of these marks of preaching that leads people to Christ from the greatest preacher of the Old Covenant era. We're just going to look at two this morning, and we'll grab the rest of them uh, next week, Lord willing. The first is the context of preaching. The context of preaching in verses 1 and 2. Beginning of chapter 3 is really 18 years after the events of chapter 2. Right? Jesus is 12 years old, he's in the temple, and now it's 18 years later. And John now appears in the wilderness preaching, the word coming to him, commissioning him, calling him to this ministry. The issue Luke is addressing for us is the historical context in which John begins his ministry just prior to Jesus' public ministry. It's like, what were the headline news? Who was in power? Uh, my parents uh, saved the newspaper on the day I was born, and so I did that for my kids and, you know, got the Washington Post, the New York Times, whatever, and just what was happening? What was the front page news on the day that my kids were born or that I was born? And it's just fascinating to see what was going on. I'm not anyone of significance, but here, here is... Luke talking about the most significant rulers at this time, both politically and religiously. And it's almost like they become placeholders. He's almost kind of dissing them in a way. And, uh, and, he, and he kind of puts them down to highlight the main event, the ministry of John preparing the way for the Messiah. Luke has already established himself as a historian in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, as he writes to Theophilus. He's writing an orderly account. He's done his research. He's done his homework. We've already seen in chapter 2, verse 1, he locates the birth of Jesus in the reign of August, Caesar Augustus. And uh, 
in, in this registration of when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So he's very concerned about the historical accuracy of these things. And so he begins by listing the political and religious context in which the word of God comes at this time. Like we said, there's five political rulers and two religious rulers. And in that order, let's look at the political leaders of the time. What was it like politically when John came on the scene? Well, it says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So Tiberius comes after Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar is the one who is in Luke 2. And he adopted Tiberius as his son. And he wanted to ensure that he would become the emperor. So he made him a co-regent with him. So they were both ruling at the same time. And then when Augustus died, he took over. And so actually this makes it a little bit difficult to know when the 15th year of his reign was because uh, he became co-regent a few years before he died, Augustus died. And so some are like, well, is is the beginning of his reign considered at his co-regency or is it at the death of Augustus? And so there's a a, couple years uh, of difference here, depending on how you take it. It's either 26 AD or 29 AD when John begins his ministry uh, based on, which one he's, he's looking to when that, that reign started. But here he, he, he's one of the most significant as the emperor and yet uh, not really addressed so much in the rest of the gospel. These other figures though, we, we do hear more about. The next one is Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate, we know from uh, the gospels and his, uh, the trials of Jesus and him giving over Jesus to be crucified. He ruled in this way from AD 26 to 36. Now, what's interesting is how he got into power. Archelaus was to rule over Judea according to Herod the Great's wishes, but the Romans removed him and replaced him in AD 6 because he was so bad. I mean, that's saying a lot, right? To to have to get kicked out by the Romans because you're so bad. Uh, After that, five governors served in that role and Pontius Pilate was the fifth of those governors. Interestingly enough, in 1961, they found a stone in Caesarea Maritima, which is right on the, on the Mediterranean, and it, it was a stone that had the name of Pontius Pilate on it and referring to Tiberius's reign. And so it was a, a massive discovery confirming from an extra-biblical source uh, the, and from the first century the reign and confirming the reign of Pontius Pilate. I'm not sure where it is. I, th- I think I've seen a... Uh, a replica of it, but I don't know where the actual one is. It's somewhere, probably the British Museum or something. Uh, but we, we learn later in the Gospels about him and his wickedness. Really, all these leaders are wicked rulers. It's a wicked time politically. And so we, we see Pontius Pilate, and then he says, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, if you've, if you've tried to figure out the Herods, uh, you start to pull your hair out. I mean, this family was so messed up, uh, and, and it, so it becomes difficult to say, which Herod are we talking about here? And I think the ESV Bible has, study Bible, has actually kind of a, like, a breakdown of how to figure it out. So you could look at that, and I did, and it's still confusing, but that's not our point here to, to put you to sleep talking about Herod's family. But simply to say, Herod the Great is the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem. He ruled over all of Israel. And after his death, his kingdom was divided into four different parts. Israel was divided in the rulership of it. And that's what a tetrarch refers to, someone who rules over a fourth of the kingdom. 
Think of the name Tetris, right? Or the, the game Tetris. You ever played Tetris? And I was thinking about this week. I was like, oh yeah, Tetris. It's, you know, the, each, each piece you have to set up has four blocks, right? So you have this, like the square one, it's got four blocks. And then you have the L one, it's got three and then one. And, you know, I'm not going to describe them all to you. But you get the point. They, they're each a block, but they're made of four different pieces. So a, a quarter. Uh, so that's the idea of a tetrarch. You have the, the name Yahweh uh, is, is called the Tetragrammaton. This is so fun to say. Tetra, it's, it's the four-letter name of God, yod Hey wow Hey, And so, or maybe it's the other way, yod Hey wow because the Hebrew's opposite. All right, so, uh, so that's this idea of tetragram. It's, it's a ruler of the fourth. And so it was broken up in these four different sections. One part was ruled by Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect. One was ruled by Herod Antipas. He imprisoned John the Baptist and had him beheaded. Read about that later, next week. One is Philip, the brother of Herod, over Iturea and Trachonitis. And then one was Lysanias. And we, we know the least about Lysanias over Abilene. Uh, there was actually a discovery that there was a Lysanias who ruled before this time. And so scholars used to say, well, well, so-called scholars who don't like the Bible uh, and its truthfulness would say, oh, well, the Bible got it wrong because this guy didn't even rule during the time of John the Baptist. But later it was discovered there was another Lysanias who was probably a descendant of that first one who did rule during the time of John. So, okay, just wait long enough and they'll dig it up and they'll confirm it. Uh, so Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. These are the political rulers. The, the big takeaway is they are all wicked. These are all wicked men. Israel is being ruled over by Rome broken into pieces, and it, this is the context in which the Davidic king comes on the scene, and the forerunner to him prepares the way for him. But not only do we see the political context, but we see the religious context. The religious context. It says it was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. What's interesting is it refers to them in the singular as the high priesthood. So how does that work? Why, why are they referred to as the singular high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas? Well, there's a couple reasons this might be the case. One is simply the fact that uh, the, the high priest, well, in Israel was supposed to be a high priest for life. It's kind of like a Supreme Court justice. And uh, yet Annas is still alive. It's possible they maintained their, their title, like we refer to former presidents as presidents still, even though they're not uh, in office. That's possible. But what happened was the Romans removed Annas because of his power from the high priesthood. And and yet Annas became, still maintained great control. So it's like he, he ruled from behind the scenes. He was the de facto high priest. And so you can refer to Annas and Caiaphas as the singular high priesthood because really he was pulling the strings. And you see this really in that who follows Annas as high priest. After him, there were five high priests who were his sons. And then one of his grandsons was high priest. And then his son-in-law became high priest and his son-in-law is Caiaphas. And so this stayed really tight, really close within the family. And even when you look at the trials of Jesus, you see that Annas has a, a significant part to play in that as well, uh, alongside Caiaphas. So he's really the one behind the scenes. He served, Annas did officially, from 6 to 15 AD. And then Caiaphas served from 18 to 36 AD. These are wicked men. Uh, they, the, the high priesthood had come more of a political office and they had corrupted a, a, it, Judaism. It was an apostate system that they were uh, ruling over. And so this is the dire circumstances in which John comes on the scene. Politically wicked, religiously apostate, and here's where he is. 
And this is where the text then focuses our attention at the end of verse two. It's in the context of all these rulers and authorities and it says this, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. That's the focus. That's the, that's the way Luke is focusing our attention. Despite all of these religious leaders, these religious and political authorities, they are set in contrast to the authority of authorities, the word of God, which comes. After these 400 years of prophetic silence, God word, God's word comes again to the prophet. And this is, a, this is a classic formulation of a call to a prophet. You read about this with like Jeremiah, with Zechariah, these different prophets, the word of the Lord came to, fill in the blank, he was the, the son of blank. And that's exactly what you find here. It came, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. It's a clear allusion to say, here is a prophet. Here's God calling this prophet to this ministry. God takes the initiative. God acts first. And so we say, well, why is this all here? Why does he highlight this? Well, there's a couple things. It highlights the truthfulness of scripture. And Christianity is a historic religion. It is not... Uh, mythological. It's very concerned with the details of history. And so Luke nails it down for us when this was. You can check it. You can look at it and, and confirm it in extra biblical sources. But it's more than that. He's trying to locate the, minist- the timing of the ministry of John. And that's certainly a part of this. But even beyond that, I think the focus is on what God counts most significance of most significance. It, it, it emphasizes the true valuation of God. Then in the midst of these ruling authorities that of course God has in his sovereignty placed at this time, he has a greater authority. The, the action, where the action is, is the word of God coming to this prophet out in the wilderness. Not in Jerusalem, but out in the wilderness. What is most important in the midst of these famous people in the world is the word of God coming. They're just placeholders for the real action. It's a reminder to us as well that the the word of God comes in any context, in every context. It doesn't matter what the context is politically, what the context is religiously. The word of God comes into all those contexts. Our day is not unique. You think politically and you can be you get heartburned from that and the leaders. And, you know, I often th- I think, like I tell Alex, like, I can't wait until, you know, the biography is written on this person or that person or this season that we're in and 50 years. Of course, we won't be able to read it because, you know, we probably won't be here or most of us, you know. But we think, man, to get, to get what is going on? Like, what is really going on behind the scenes? And we know a lot about what's going on behind the scenes with these leaders that are listed because we can go back. We're way past that. We don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. We get little hints and we go, well, that doesn't sound good. Uh, but, the truth is probably worse, right? We, we could get greatly discouraged. And then you think of the religious scene of what's going on in our day, and there's great discouragement there. And it's no different in John's day as he comes on the scene and brings the word of God. The word of God is re- relevant in whatever time and place it comes. Noah was a preacher of righteousness in the days before the flood. Daniel was a preacher and a, and a teacher in the time when Israel was in Babylon in captivity. Nehemiah found himself in difficult times as Israel returned to the land in a desolate time and he brought the word of God and brought it forth to the people and exposited it. And then we, of course, listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
Turn there, if you will. Second uh, Timothy 3, speaking about our time in these days. Second Timothy 3, verse 1. It says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. These are the days that, that we live in. And it's like you read this list and you go, wow, yeah, this is terrible. And that this is the context in which the word of God comes. And, and we see that because in chapter four of 2 Timothy, here's what Paul's prescription is in light of the days in which we live. Verse one of chapter four, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is what Paul calls Timothy to do in the days in which we live. Preach the word in season and out. And you think, what does that mean? It means when it's popular, when it's not popular. You know, it's, you're either in a season or you're out of the season. So do it all the time. And, and so here we have the word of God coming to John in this time that is dark, politically, dark religiously, and yet the word of God comes and he is to preach into that time. The, one of the uh, slogans of the Reformation uh, was post tenebrooks lux, right? After darkness, light. I mean, there's a clarity that comes in dark days when the scriptures go forth. It, it is so uh, polarizing, and that is really the day in which we live, where there is great darkness, and yet the need for the light of the message to go forth. People want to hear all kinds of stuff. They want us to tell them what they, what they want, their felt needs, and, and the word of God is coming and saying, here is the word of God. Listen to one of my uh, pastoral mentors, a uh, Alex Montoya, uh, he's been a pastor for like over 50 years, same church in Los Angeles, uh, South Central Los Angeles. And he, and he was just saying like, hey, pastors, you can't be a popular preacher. You know, you, you, John the Baptist was not a popular preacher. You have to be content with that because you can't just tell people what they want to hear, to itch their ears, to soothe them, but they have to hear the truth. That's what John was called to do. And so he was ultimately killed for that, but he was faithful to proclaim repentance. Certainly all of us are called to preach, to bring the message to others, uh, but some are called in particular to this work as John was. 
There's something to be said about the need for uh, men who are actually called to the ministry and not just they want to do it, you know, for uh, their own gain. Listen to J.C. Ryle at this point. He says this, let it be a part of our daily prayers that our churches may have no ministers excepting those who are really called of God. An unconverted ministry is an injury and burden to a church. How can a man speak of truths which he has never tasted? How can he testify of a savior whom he has never seen by faith and never laid hold on for his own soul? The pastor after God's own heart is a man to whom the word of God has come. He runs confidently because he has tidings. He speaks boldly because he has been sent. That is John the Baptist, a truly converted man bringing the word of God in a dark time, bold because he has been sent. So this is the context of preaching. It comes in all contexts. And the call comes and God raises up individuals. He gives them the compulsion to do it. He works character in their lives. He gifts them with competence to do it. And he calls them by churches to during that ministry. He still does it today. This is the context of preaching. Second, we see for this morning, the content of preaching. The content of preaching in verses three to six. Starting in verse three, it says, and, went, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We're given really the, the field of his ministry and then the focus of his ministry. He, where it was and what it was about. He's in the area of the wilderness around the Dead Sea. Uh, not in Jerusalem, not in the popular place, but out in the desert. And yet people are still coming out to hear him. What's the focus of his preaching? What was the content of it? Well, it was the scriptures. That's the main point. He preached the scriptures, preached from Isaiah. He preached a message of repentance. He knew his role as the forerunner. But the focus of his ministry is really seen here in verse three as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what he was proclaiming. Of course, we read verse 18 he preached good news to the people. The content of John's ministry was the word of God, the scriptures. John the Baptist was a preacher. It says he was proclaiming. This is the, the classic word for preaching, kerooks. It's a word for a town crier, a herald, someone who goes in the town, hear ye, hear ye. They've been given a message from a, a king to communicate and they they are seen as faithful whether they communicate that accurately or not. They're not to add to the message, not to take away from the message. They're simply to clearly articulate the message of the king. And that is what John is to do. He is proclaiming the message of the king, preparing people. He is this town crier, this herald. He prepares people for the Messiah's coming. He would later say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points. He's a big finger that points to another, a voice. How does he do this? Well, he does it by preaching a message of repentance. That's how he prepares the way. One writer translated it, a baptism of repentance with a view to the forgiveness of sins. But really, we have three, three terms here that, that warrant uh, definition, explanation. Baptism, repentance, and forgiveness, okay? All right, let's dive in. Baptism, what, what is the nature of this baptism? Because at this point, there's no Christian baptism. That's not, a, that's not a thing yet. That won't be instituted until after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And the, the new meaning of union with Christ will be infused into that uh, ordinance where we are shown in this picture to be united with Christ and the symbolism of baptism where we go into the water being united with him in a death like his and we come out of the water being united with him in a resurrection like his. And so there's this cleansing idea, yes, but, but it's this union with Christ that is symbolized, that has happened spiritually to us, that we demonstrate outwardly to say what has actually happened to us. And we proclaim our faith in Christ. We show our allegiance to him. So that wasn't around. So what is John doing here? John is baptizing. He is immersing people in the Jordan. And the closest thing we have most likely to what John is doing is something that was practiced in, in Israel and it's called proselyte baptism. And it really a proselyte was a, a Gentile who converted to Judaism. They said, I, I am a Gentile, but I've recognized that Yahweh is the true God. I mean, think of people like Rahab and she becomes a convert. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was a proselyte. He was a convert to Judaism, though he was a Gentile. And so they would say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to be baptized, immersed, and it has to be running water. And since so they had these things called mikvahs, which are like these baths, and you would do it yourself. It was like self-baptism. And, uh, and you would go into this and you would go under the water and there would be you know, flowing in and flowing out. And it would show that your Gentileness is being washed away. Right? You need a cleansing. And so there's a sense of cleansing that is a part of that. But if you notice in the comparing the other gospels, the primary recipients of this baptism of John were Jews. And so you think, okay, this is a proselyte baptism. It's for Gentiles who are becoming Jews. And John is doing it to Jews. This is what was probably so offensive about John's baptism. It's as if he was saying... You all are Jews, but you need to undergo this baptism just like the Gentiles do, a baptism of repentance. Because you may be born a Jew, but you're only a true Jew if you have repented and placed your faith in the coming Messiah. If you're hoping for him, if you have truly recognized, acknowledged your sin and, and turned away from it. It's like, <laughs> you need to do the same thing that Gentiles do. And so really that is what John is, is doing. It is scandalous. You're not just a Jew because of your ancestry. And that's what he's gonna say in the, in, in the next verses uh, next week. Don't just say that you have Abraham as your forefather. You need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The apostasy of the Jewish religion at this time necessitated such a preparation for the Messiah couple observations. John's baptism was by immersion. That's obviously the case. He's, he's dunking people. I mean, he could, have, he could have easily sprinkled people somewhere else, but he goes to this water to put them under. It was also for those who had repented, those who were adults who had consciously made a turn from their sin, and he then baptizes them on that basis. I think some have pointed out that when you think about what were in the New Testament, when you, when you have Christian baptism, what is the, the antecedent? What comes before that in closest uh, in history? Was it circumcision? No, it was actually John's baptism. That was the closest parallel. And it was by immersion for adults who had professed uh, their repentance and their awaiting the Messiah. Now, how do we know, this is just a footnote here, but how do we know that the idea in this baptism was not the means of forgiveness? That, like, be baptized and that is how you'll get forgiven. 
like actually getting dunked. Well, verse eight tells us that those who are coming to be baptized, he says, no, no, I'm not gonna baptize you. You need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So what John is telling us is it's for those who have repented that then get baptized. It is to say, it is symbolize, I've repented, I'm looking forward to the Messiah, and therefore I'm gonna demonstrate that through baptism. So it's not the act that, that forgives, brings forgiveness, it is the symbol of what has taken place internally. Also, we get a little bit of a hint in Acts chapter 19 about this baptism, John's baptism. It's this really interesting episode as the gospel is going forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. We meet this interesting group of people in Acts chapter 19, verse one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit or that he's been given. Uh, Verse three, and he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So in this transitionary period of the church, you have these guys who are like, they haven't heard that the Holy Spirit's come at Pentecost yet and and that there's this new era. And so they've been baptized already by John in preparation. And now uh, Paul comes and they're like, whoa, we didn't even, we didn't know about Pentecost yet. And so he, he says, well, you need to be baptized into this baptism. Looking back to what the Messiah has done has new significance. And so they are, they're baptized again. So it's not, there was nothing inherent in John's baptism that that saved you. It was a symbol showing identification with repentance. And so this is what he did. He was baptizing people, baptizing Jews, preparing them for their Messiah. It was also a baptism of repentance. Repentance. This is what John's message was, a message of repentance. He'll say in verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then he'll explain what repentance looks looks like in different cases how it manifests itself in verses 10 to 14. What does repentance mean? Well, it's a change. It's a turning about. It's a 180. You're going in this direction and you turn and go in the other direction. Some people overemphasize the fact that repentance is a change of mind in the sense that that's only a change of mind. Uh, I think that's limiting how the term is used, both in the Old Testament and the New. There are it, it is really the whole person that is involved in repentance. It is mind, affections, and will. It's just like faith is. It, it is knowledge, it, it, it is our affections, and it is our will. It's fundamentally an internal change that is seen in fruits born on the outside. And so you could think about it in these ways. First, it begins with a recognition of sin. This is what repentance is. Sometimes repentance, I'm belaboring this point, I'm going to, uh, because it is a Christian term that is so undefined that people don't even know what it means anymore. Repent, you just gotta repent. Uh, what do we mean by that? Well, it involves a recognition of sin. This is the intellectual side of repentance, a change in our thinking about sin. 
Remember David in Psalm 51? He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Done was evil in your sight. He acknowledges his sin. But simply acknowledging that you have sinned and are a sinner is not repentance. Someone may say, I am a sinner. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have repented. There is also not only recognition of sin, but remorse over sin. This is the affectional or emotional side of repentance. There, there is a sorrow. There is a grief. There is a contrition, a mourning over sin. It may or may not involve tears. This expresses itself to different degrees and in different ways for different people. But you could have someone who has tears and yet is not repentant. And you could have someone without tears who is repentant. The outward expression is not the point. It is the heart grieved over sin. This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> he says in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For, and here's the comparison he makes, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And then he describes how this godly grief manifests itself in a person's life. Verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Probably innocent in the matter of a worldly grief. Your response has shown that you truly have a godly sorrow. So I could have two people who come into my, you know, my study and, and they are confessing and repenting of a sin, both with tears, both physically moved at their sin, and down the line, it could prove that this person over here truly has repented of their sins, whereas this person has not, and ultimately, it will show it in their actions as they walk away. And yet, at, in the sight of it, for us looking on, at the moment, it can appear the exact same outwardly. But Paul is saying, you can have tears on both sides, but there is a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is true repentance. Judas had remorse in Matthew 27, verse three, a grief over betraying Jesus. And yet, what did he do? He hung himself. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 22, after talking with Jesus about salvation and Jesus telling him the cost of salvation, he goes away and it says, grieving, sorrowful. He was sad but not into repenting. He was concerned about other loss. Listen to what Joel chapter two says. This is one of the two Old Testament texts that are massive on defining repentance for us. One of them is Joel chapter two, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, yet even now declares Yahweh, return to me. That's the word for repentance. Return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. There's this 
remorse over sin from the heart, this rending of the heart, tearing of the heart over sin. Not just that the consequences of sin, being sad that you were caught or sad that, you know, you've been found out, your reputation, but when you see in Scripture against you, God, you only have I sinned. Remember the prodigal? He comes back and says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Heaven is another way to just refer to God. His concern is I've sinned against God. Dan, uh, Joseph, when he's tempted, he says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? He's, this is the concern of the heart that is truly repentant. They're concerned about how they've offended God. There's a repudiation of sin then because there's this remorse of it and this, now there's this turning into this hatred for sin and then finally there's the, the will, the volition and it's this resolve against sin. Now, mind you, we're not saying repentance is clean up your life, get everything in order and then you prove to God that you're ready to be saved. No, 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 we're not talking about preparationism as you clean up your life and then God saves you. No, we're talking about this resolve that recognizes the enemy and says, I hate this sin, and it is my resolve to fight against sin wherever I see it. It doesn't mean you've fought any battles. It means that this is the right identification of the enemy. Listen how Isaiah 55, the second Old Testament text that is so clear on repentance. Isaiah 55 says this about repentance in verse six. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. There is this forsaking of the way, forsaking of our sin, a turning from it. And there is with that a returning to the Lord. So you can't have a, a, a turning away from sin to another sin. It is a turning from sin to God. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. He doesn't use the word repent, but he demonstrates the picture of it and the concept of it as he describes what happened for the Thessalonians, these new believers. Here's how he describes what happened to them in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so they turn from their sin to God, from their idols to God. It's like a declaration of war against sin in my life. So though it is not a cleaning up of your life, true repentance always leads to a changed life. It always bears fruit. Now, different kinds of fruit, different levels of fruit, but bears fruit. That's why John can say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show it. Prove it. You guys say that you're right with God. You're the leaders of Israel. And yet, there is nothing in your life that would say that you've actually repented, that you hate your sin, that you love God. Repentance is a necessary part of the gospel. Some take it out completely. Or they just simply make it a purely mental thing, like you just change your mind about what you thought about Christ. That is true. You need to do that. But it is more than that. It's this internal change, your fundamental change regarding your perception of sin, your perception of Christ. I mean, John begins his ministry, repent. The first words of the gospel in Mark is, from Jesus is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is all over the place. 
Repent, repent. It begins Luke's gospel uh, through, G- through John the Baptist's ministry, and it ends Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24, verse 47. This is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Sometimes in scripture, you have repentance and faith together in the same verse. Sometimes you just have repentance mentioned. And sometimes you just have faith mentioned. What that tells us is you can talk about faith and repentance is included. It's a repentant faith or a, uh, a, 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 what would be the opposite? Repenting faith and a a faith-filled repentance. There you go. (laughs) Um, Hopefully that makes sense. One assumes the other, right? So if you're turning to Christ, it assumes you're turning from something. If you're turning away from sin, it assumes you're turning to something. And so that is this idea of repentance. It is necessary. One writer said this, to suggest that someone could believe without repenting that they could embrace Christ without also decisively purposing to repudiate sin is to suggest that sin is more objectively desirable to the regenerated heart than Christ is. And so these are both listed as the response to the gospel. They are two sides of the same reality. And it is a gift from God by faith. Acts chapter 11, verse 18 speaks this way of how God has granted even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. And Paul said, hey, be patient with people as you interact with them on the truth because God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It is a gift just like faith is a gift. It is something God works in the heart. We'll look more next week at repentance and having to find it in part, we'll look more about what it looks like in a life, what the fruit of repentance actually is. But repentance is necessary in one's response to the gospel. Begs the question, have you repented of your sins? In that initial way, there's a sense of repentance unto life, and that's how we come into the faith, but we are continual repenters. The whole of the life of the Christian is repentance and faith. Is there sin in your life that you must repent of? An area where you need to rightly recognize it, confess it before God, repudiate it, hate that, turn from it. J.C. Ryle, or Thomas Watson, in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, he lists seven, or sorry, six different qualities of repentance. I wrote in my Bible, if I can find 2 Corinthians, there we go. Uh, He says, it involves a sight of sin, a sorrow for sin, a confession of sin, a shame for sin, a hatred for sin, and a turning from sin. This is what true repentance involves. And here he says, it's a baptism of repentance, finally, for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is this great word. It's to release someone. It is to uh, release them of an obligation or bondage. Sending something away to be released. And so our, our, our sins are sent away. Now, repentance doesn't atone for you. Your repentance and faith is the way in which you receive the accomplishment of Christ. Christ has atoned for sinners. Repentance recognizes sin and relies upon Christ for forgiveness. 
R. Kent Hughes writes this, it is important for us to see the close connection between repentance and forgiveness because while no amount of repentance can ever merit forgiveness in the sight of God, without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. Repentance is the telltale mark of the grace of God at work in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance are always found together. Saved souls are repentant souls. Bad news hurts, but it helps because there is hope of forgiveness. John preaches good news, and that good news is in part repentance. There can, you can repent and turn to God and find forgiveness. The picture he gives of this, like we said, is from Isaiah. And it's this idea of clearing the road. Clearing the road. This is the picture he gives of what it looks like to repent. Preparing the way for the Messiah. His ministry is to clear the way for the dignitary, for, for the king. He is a voice. Notice how nondescript that is. He's not even a man. It's just a voice. This is the preacher who, it's not about the preacher. It's about the message. And so John is simply a voice. The voice goes forth. It doesn't matter whose voice it is. It is a voice that proclaims a preparation. And you think maybe you're going to have some people over tonight to watch the game. And you think, we've got to prepare the house. We've got to clean the rest of this afternoon. And so you're preparing the way for people. But here's a preparation for the Lord to come. It's actually an indication of Jesus' deity because in the Old Testament, who's being, whose way is being prepared? Yahweh's. Whose way is being prepared by John? Jesus' way. He's equating Jesus with the Lord, the, with Yahweh. And so Isaiah writes as fulfilling this voice of one crying, preparing the way, and this valley being filled, every mountain and hill being made low, the crooked becoming straight, rough places shall become level, filling in, making the path smooth, this is repentance. And he says, he quotes more than Matthew and Mark because he wants to include the, the scope of this offer where he says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is for all nations. Anyone can come. John needed to prepare the way for Christ because of the condition of the people when Christ came. Many people have been inoculated to the gospel, just like today, just like in the South. A lot of people have been inoculated. They've heard the gospel. Maybe they prayed a prayer. They walked an aisle. They signed a card. That, that whole like, thing that people say when they talk about this, right? It's the same thing. But they, they've done all these things. They've been baptized. They've, I've just grown up in the church, whatever. And they don't know Christ. They've never actually repented. There are people like that. And they think, well, I don't need Christ. I don't need the gospel because I've already been saved, right? But they haven't. They've been inoculated. And that's what John is gonna say to them next week. He's gonna say, don't say that you have an ancestry. Don't say you grew up in the church. Don't say you have Abraham as your forefather. You yourself need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You yourself need to repent. That's what must happen. And so that's why he preaches. And that's why we have to preach to those around us and, and genuinely plead with them and and. Ask some good questions that are going to ascertain if they've really truly repented, if they really truly have embraced Christ. Thomas Watson wrote this, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Christ is not loved until sin is loathed. And this is the work of repentance, that it makes us loathe sin. It makes us taste the bitterness of sin in our lives so that we see the worth of Christ so that we see the loveliness of Christ and the sweetness of his person and we have to have him. The eyes through regeneration are opened and we see the filth of our sin for what it is and we see the worth of Christ for who he is and we have to come to him and in coming to him, we have to leave our sin. We cannot have it any longer. 
The preacher doesn't make up the message. He proclaims the message given to him by God. And that's exactly what John did. He took the message from Isaiah. He took the message of repentance and he preached it. So no matter what context we find ourselves in, the word of God is relevant. And the content of the message is the scriptures and the message of repentance. Let Spurgeon close us out. One of his sermons entitled, The Problem of the Age. He says this, Dear friends, do not imagine that God will bless one preacher only or one denomination only. He does bless some preachers more than others, for he is sovereign. But he will bless you all, he will bless all of you in your work, for he is God. I shall never forget one day when my dear old grandfather was alive. I was to preach a sermon. There was a great crowd of people, and I did not arrive, for the train was delayed, and therefore the venerable man commenced to preach in my stead. He was, he was far on in his sermon when I made my appearance at the door. Looking to me, he said, you have all come to hear my, great, my dear grandson, and therefore I will stop that you may hear him. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? My answer from the aisle was, I cannot preach the gospel better, but if I could, it would not be a better gospel. So it is, brethren. Others may break the bread to more people, but they cannot break better bread than the gospel which you teach. For that is bread from our Savior's own hand. Get to work, each one of you, with your bread breaking. For this is Christ's way of feeding the multitude. Let each one who has himself eaten divide his morsel with another. Today, fill someone's ear with the good news of Jesus and his love. Endeavor this day, each one of you, who are a Christian people, to communicate to one man, woman, or child somewhat of the spiritual meat which has made your soul glad. This is my master's way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel, the good tidings of Jesus Christ who has come and victoriously conquered sin and death to bring immortality and life to light through the gospel. Oh Lord, may you grant us a true sight of Christ and of our sin that we may continually repent of our sin and rely solely upon Christ, finding the joy of being freed from our sin and being united to him and enjoying communion with him. If there are those here who have yet to repent of their sin, give them a sight of their sin that would compel them to flee from it and a sight of Christ that would compel them to come to him. And Lord, would you continue to do that in our lives? If there are sins that need to be repented for the health of our body, would you expose them to us that we may confess them and find mercy and grace and help as we confess them? He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever forsakes them will find mercy. Lord, give us humble hearts. Give us receptive hearts to your word. And may you receive glory as we taste and see that you are good. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's respond in praise to our God. Sing the